This is Undisciplined. I'm Matthew LaPlante, sitting in for Nalini Nadkarni. Children and young adults know very well how impacted they are going to be by climate change. But they also have little power to change the course of this crisis. And that makes them vulnerable to climate anxiety. A recent study in the medical journal The Lancet puts this into a global perspective. Researchers surveyed 10,000 children and young people aged 16 to 25 years in Australia, Brazil, Finland, France, India, Nigeria, the Philippines, Portugal, and the United Kingdom, and the United States to evaluate climate-related distress. And majorities of respondents across all of those countries were worried about climate change. And And not just a little worried, 75% said they think the future is frightening. 83% said they think people have failed to take care of this planet. And respondents rated governmental responses to climate change negatively and far more reported greater feelings of betrayal than reassurance. Joining me today is the lead author of that study. Caroline Hickman is a lecturer at the University of Bath, a practicing psychotherapist and a researcher whose work is focused on anxiety and distress related to ecological crises. Caroline Hickman, welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much. Delighted to be here. You've been doing research on the connection between the climate crisis and emotional distress for for about a decade now, but you've been working in social work as a psychotherapist for about 25 years. What made you realize that this was an area that needed study? About 20 years ago, I was an environmental activist, cared about the planet in one part of my life. And then I was a psychotherapist over the other side of my life and I took a I had a fabulous midlife crisis I ran away to Egypt to be a diving instructor I closed down my psychotherapy practice in London found homes for my cats I just wanted to go and spend time underwater and what happened was because I was underwater every day and I was in that natural environment every day, I started to see at a different level the damage that we were doing to the coral reefs, the damage that we were doing to that environment that I loved. And it brought it home to me in a way that I hadn't really seen before. You know, when you're living in a city or living in an urban environment, or when you're living in the US or Finland or Sweden or the UK, we don't see the daily impacts of climate change that dramatically, not yet. If you're living in Bangladesh or the Maldives or Nigeria or the Philippines, you see it. It's on your doorstep. But for us, it's a bit more distant. Suddenly, it wasn't so distant for me. I was seeing it because I was living in a world that it was affecting. And I thought, well, I need to do something about this. And and a lot of my work previously had been around children with young people with trauma and recovery from trauma. And I thought, there's a strong connection here because climate change is traumatizing us and yet we don't recognize in what ways it's traumatizing us immediately when you look out of your window but do you feel like do you feel like children feel that urgency they they well 
they grasp that more? I think that's a really good question because I think we're going to generalize here, but I think a lot of children and young people do grasp that urgency perhaps more than the majority of adults. And there's a couple of reasons for that. One is they've not learned quite so much, and I apologize for the generalization, but they've not learned quite so much that the world's not fair and that you're not going to get everything that you want in the world. They still have their hope and their idealized dreams alive about their future. So they're looking at this in a future-oriented way, whereas older people are tending to look at it as a backwards way. The other thing to add there is that young people have got a really strong sense of empathy with each other and with the injustice that's being committed to young people around the world. And it's not their fault. They've not caused the carbon emissions. So they are paying the price, but they haven't created the problem. And so you come back from this this adventure that you were having and you want to you want to integrate these two things into your practice did you feel at that time like you had the language and the training and the preparation to help young people deal with these feelings or did you have to did did you have to search out a little bit the the way that you would let this inform your practice no you're absolutely right i didn't have a clue really and this is new for humanity although we've got useful psychological models which we've used to help us deal with trauma and deal with natural disasters and we can draw on those climate change is very different let me explain why we can get through other terrifying things as human beings like wars by thinking oh when we get on the other side of this it'll be okay and you hear that language around covid for example, when we get beyond this, when we get everybody vaccinated, when we beat this. So human beings maintain hope by imagining on the other side of this problem, we'll be okay again. The problem with climate change is it's too late for us to have that narrative. It's too late for us to say, when we get beyond this, when we fix this problem, we can just carry on as before. Because we're halfway through the story now. Even if we went to zero carbon emissions tomorrow, the amount of carbon in the atmosphere means the world will continue to warm up and sea levels will continue to rise. Ice will continue to melt. This is awful. This is really hard for us to wake up to. But if we don't wake up to this, we're not going to see it as an urgent problem and we're not going to take urgent action. So we're halfway through the story now, and this is why it's a real struggle for us to psychologically wrap our heads around this, because we want to deal with things that are really threatening to us now, here and now, but this is happening so slowly and incrementally around the world that we can dismiss it. So do you you see this as a collective trauma, maybe like the first truly global collective trauma? Absolutely. Absolutely. Because this is the one thing affecting the world that you can't get away from. Some, it doesn't affect it equally. Some parts will suffer more than others. But then if you think about it as a systemic problem, there'll be a knock-on effect. People have got to go somewhere. So if their own country gets too hot for them to live in, where are they going to go? They've got to go somewhere else. So there'll be nowhere on the planet that is unaffected which is unique. We've never had this before. But you you didn't see that. I mean, like majorities of young people in your survey, and I, I, I agree with you, like a lot of people, if you 
take a cross section of the population, you take some old people, you take some young people, you're going to find some climate optimists and some climate pessimists. You and your collaborators found a majority in almost all nations across all of the scores of questions that you asked of young people who were saying, and, and this is how you've described it, their collective answers were devastating. Tell, tell me what you meant by that. We measure mental health by looking at our capacity to respond to external reality. And therefore, when children and young people are telling us that they feel anxious, they feel afraid, we should be validating and listening to that fear. The worst figure in all of this research, for me, was that 48% of children and young people said they were dismissed and ignored when they tried to talk about climate change. Well, and and if you add that number to the number who said they just don't talk about climate change, presumably because they know they'll be dismissed, that's a a majority then, right? Exactly. Well, they'll be dismissed and ignored at best. At worst, they will be pathologized, criticized, attacked, criminalized, told that they're getting it wrong, told that they're not patriotic, told that they don't care, told that they're selfish. You know, the attacks on youth climate strikers who dare put their heads up and speak out about this are shocking. So, and we, let me go back to my point, which is we have caused this. It's my generation that has caused this problem. It's my generation and the generation just below me and beyond me who've caused these carbon emissions. These 16-year-olds haven't caused these carbon emissions. They've not been in the workplace long enough to contribute to that. So we are holding them responsible, making them suffer for something that they've not caused and that they are powerless to act on. Now, I'm not saying they haven't got agency. They haven't got some capacity to speak out about this, but they don't have the economic power that you and I have got. So what we're doing there is hurting children and young people, dismissing them when they tell us, if they tell us, creating a future for them that is frightening. 75% said the future is frightening. 83% think that people have failed to care for the planet. And the 56% who think humanity is doomed. Now, those are the global averages. And there were differences. You you did see some differences from country to country, right? 56% worldwide thought that humanity was doomed. But if we looked at the figure just for the Philippines, 73% in the Philippines thought that humanity was doomed. Three quarters or more globally think the future is frightening, 75%. If we look at the figure for the Philippines, it's 92%. So the young people, so this is a a cautionary tale. The Philippines are right on the forefront of dealing with climate change. Mitzi Tan from the Philippines, an activist, is famous for saying she goes to bed at night frightened she will drown in her bed. This is where the young people in Europe and the United States will be heading. So that's where they're going to be going. Right, right. I mean, like... This was this was incredible to me because when you look at survey data, yeah. you usually don't see numbers like and for instance, and I'll kind of set you up here. The the Philippines in the Philippines, you surveyed roughly one thousand people, sixteen to twenty-five, and more than nine hundred of them said they felt like the future was a frightening thing. That is so sad. Oh, it's and 
devastating. One of the things that you and your collaborators noticed was that these survey participants, they tended to be even more, to use your words, not okay if they perceive their government's response to be inadequate. And and when we put this into the framing of trauma, this relates to a phenomenon that has been pretty well studied in other traumatic contexts, which is called moral injury, which this is instances in which there's been a betrayal of what is perceived to be right. And moral injury compounds trauma, doesn't it? Where these questions came from, so I've spent 10 years talking with children, young people in the UK, America, all over the world about climate change. But my previous research was qualitative. So I was talking directly to the young people, getting them to tell me their story. And what I started to realise from talking with them was it wasn't the climate crisis that was causing the distress. It was the failure of adults, specifically governments and big business, to do what was right. So I started to figure out that actually it wasn't the environment that was causing eco-anxiety. It was people failing to act, but it was very specific groups of people. It was the people who were supposed to care. And then I linked that to psychological knowledge about attachment and damage and harm that's done to children and young people when they're hurt within family groups or within communities or by trusted adults, teachers, you know, ministers, people who are supposed to look after you. And what they do is that hurt, it's like you, I call it, it's like having your brain pretzeled. It gets twisted and distorted because these are the people who are supposed to look after me. They're elected to look after me or their parents and teachers. And they tell me they care whilst hurting me and doing the opposite of what I need them to do. Um, 61% said governments were lying about the impact of their actions, right? 58% government is dismissing my distress. Only 28% said government can be trusted. And these are, I mean, so like, if you think about this, right, this, this is not just a psychological problem. The, the politics are problematic. You can't run a functional government for very long, not a functioning democracy, if your constituencies don't trust you to do what is right by them. Well, I think it's going to be very interesting when these 16-year-olds have the power to vote. We just saw an interesting result in the recent Australian government where there was a backlash against those entrenched government attitudes which prioritised the economy over the health uh, of the people and the country and climate change. So we just saw a massive shift there and I think we might see that increase. You know, this is, you're absolutely right. It's not just a psychological problem. It's a relational problem, isn't it? And that's why we wanted to ask about emotion, but not just emotion. We wanted to ask about the way this was impacting on young people's thinking. So it's emotion and cognition and whether it impacts on your daily life, whether you can enjoy life. And this was some of the most worrying findings was this impact on daily functioning, particularly on young people, for example, in India and the Philippines, where 74% 
said worries about climate change impacted on their ability to go to school, to eat, to sleep, to play, to enjoy being a child. So you get quite a lot of arguments flying around saying, oh, the children are scared of climate change and it's youth activists that are scaring them. Or people say it's me who's scaring them with this research, right? And what I say is, no, I'm really sorry. Children and young people are already scared. And what they're hearing in research findings like this is they're hearing validation. They're hearing people say, yeah, I get that it's scary. Um, can we can we go back to something you were saying earlier? Because I'm, I'm interested in this from a psychological standpoint, because you described these children who said, I'm afraid or I, I this is affecting me in a way that I don't want to go to school or this is affecting. Right. If people had said that, let's take this outside of the climate context. If a child came to an adult and said, I am this is there's something in my life right now where I feel like I can't go, even go to school or I I'm feeling depressed all the time. We would investigate with all of our resources. What was wrong? What was the external factor that was causing this problem? It, are they being abused? Are they being bullied? Are like, what is the source of the trauma? But when it comes to climate, it's often dismissed, isn't it? Yeah, because we don't want to face up to it ourselves. So you've got a whole mixture of responses. I don't want to give you too simplistic an answer. But in order for us to be able to tolerate listening to children and take their concerns seriously, we have to recognize, number one, that we're scared too, right? Number two, we might be feeling guilty and ashamed that we're in this mess. Number three, we want those children to pretend everything's okay because then we can carry on pretending everything's okay and everything will get sorted out. Mm. It depends where. Well, let's talk. Let's talk about that word. Those words, guilty and ashamed, because in order to acknowledge the trauma that is being inflicted on these children, somebody's got to take responsibility, and that's that's hard. But, yeah, but that's us, right? But do you do you think that's why that's one of the reasons for the dismissal is that oh, yeah. simply gen, like the the previous generations just don't want to take responsibility for having inflicted that trauma? Yeah, I think the scale of remorse that people are going to need to feel could be enormous. And at the moment, we've got a lot of disavowal where people are saying things like, oh, yeah, you know, climate change is awful and it's worrying, yeah, but, oh, I I can't wait for lockdown to be over and for restrictions to be ended because I haven't had a, for a proper holiday for two years. So you know what? I'm going to do four flights this year to make up for it. <laughs> I'm going to pump some extra yeah. carbon into the atmosphere. Right? So we've got this disconnect. We've got this complete cognitive dissonance going on. Gus Spath, who used to be the U.S. advisor on climate change scientist a few years ago, he said he used to think that the climate crisis could be fixed with a few years of decent technology. He said, but I was wrong. He said the climate crisis is people's apathy, selfishness and greed. He said, and science can't fix that. You know, large numbers of your respondents said that they felt angry and depressed and anxious about the climate crisis. And this all makes sense. But there were a few other words that they embraced as significant to their experiences. And particularly in light what you of what you said earlier, which is that it's not young people's fault that our climate and 
is in crisis. This is interesting. In almost every country, these young people said that they also felt guilty and ashamed. This is extraordinary, isn't it? I'm glad you picked this up. So in my psychotherapy practice, I'm working a lot with young people, teenagers who feel guilty and ashamed about climate change. And some of that comes from the fact that they feel so frustrated and helpless and powerless that they internalize that guilt. They feel doubly responsible for this. So some of that comes from that. They're often driven by a strong sense of global injustice. So that guilt and shame is felt in with regard to the impact on children and young people in Nigeria, Bangladesh, India. So this is young people with perhaps relatively privileged lives who feel guilt and shame because they are culpable by virtue of the fact they live in the UK or they live in the US. And then they want to do something. And what that does is it gets moved into a guilt and a shame about their privilege and their exceptionalism. So what I've seen young people do, for example, is very early in their lives, early teens, decide at the age of 12, 13, I will not have children. But I'm hearing a lot of young teens make that decision out of that sense of guilt and shame and responsibility, because that's one of the few things they can do. They can't vote. They can't lobby politicians. Well, they can. They can also lobby their parents. And so they take on that guilt and shame to a very high level. I don't want to say it's disproportionate because I think that's overcritical. But I think they're left doing that because they feel the adults around them are not taking their share of the guilt and responsibility. So often young people who are kind of parentified will take too much responsibility. And and maybe it's a small silver lining, but at, at very least, what I took away from, from all of these numbers, from all of these countries, is that most of the respondents did not report getting to a place where they have become indifferent. They're scared, they're angry, they're anxious, they're guilty, they're all of these things, but they do still care. And that's that's a starting place for healing, is it not? Oh, you're absolutely right. And that care is a sign of mental health, and it's a sign that their conscience is alive. And that is the opposite of moral injury is being able to still care about yourself and others. So they're not being, you're right, they're not being crushed, they're not being overwhelmed, they're not being annihilated by this. They care. So in between your kind of naive optimism and your kind of doom and gloom nihilism, you've got climate realism, which is this radical hope thing of it's bad and there's a lot we can do. When I started this research, this was many years ago, I asked a lot of young people, how do I talk to you about this without terrifying you and traumatizing you? And I want to quote Sophia. I'm allowed to use her name. I'm in trouble if I don't. She was eight at the time. And she said to me, she said, well, (laughs) she said, you've got to tell us the truth. She said, because if you don't tell us the truth, you're lying to us. 
She says, and if you're lying to us, then we can't tell you how we feel. And if we can't tell you how we feel, then we're on our own and we're lonely and, you know, our relationship is broken. She's eight, remember. I wish this girl was running the world. But anyway, she said, but listen, she said, don't tell us all the bad news all at once. Tell us some good news, then some bad news, then some good news, then some bad news. She said, and anyway, she said, I'm not a baby. Love that child. So, you know, you're right. This young people are frequently not indifferent. They do care. We have to normalize this for them, not greenwash them, not gaslight them, not lie to them, not pretend it's not really happening. We need to be straight with them. And they have told us in research like this just how they feel and what they think. We need to follow it up. We need to do more around the moral injury because tackling that moral injury with young people, they feel better by having a conversation along these lines and being treated with respect. This is what helps with the moral injury. And that is doable. That we could do today, right? That's Carolyn Hickman. She is a psychotherapist and a researcher whose recent study dives into the anxiety and distress that young people have about climate change and the lack of governmental response. Carolyn Hickman, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Undisciplined is a production of Utah Public Radio. And if you happen to live in Utah, you can listen to us every Thursday at 10.30 a.m. on UPR. If you miss us, then you can listen to every episode of Undisciplined wherever you get your podcasts. Our program is sponsored by a generous grant from the College of Humanities and Social Sciences at Utah State University. Our producer is Claire Scott. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tissot. And I'm Matthew LaPlante. Thanks for listening. Now go have big ideas.